Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So quick show of hands. Was anybody here also on the phone call with President Trump and Zelensky? I'll have to check my notes. I was on speaker. You were on speaker. Okay, good. You know, I, I tried to dial in and I just couldn't get the Zoom meeting app to open up on my phone. <laughs> got to install it in advance. Yeah, yeah you got to get And this is the pro way. You got to put the app on the phone and then get it. And then it's like, then you say like, Zelensky phone call, please. And, <laughs> and it there just are 17 parties waiting on the call. <laughs> yeah. Are we ever going to get the full list? Um, you know, it's going to be it's going to be a time. Maybe. I'm waiting to hear if the transportation secretary was on the Zelensky <laughs> phone call. Pretty sure it's going to be like, well, you weren't on the list? Why, everyone I know is on it. <laughs> Exclusive. It's the, place, it's the place to be. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Rudy Tooty Fresh and Fruity edition. Oh my. Oh my, Shane. <laughs> I like it. I, I like, like it too. It just sounds fun to say. <laughs> It's crazy. Yeah. Rudy's just like a He's like- stack of Rudy Tooty fun time pancakes this week. <laughs> <laughs> do you guys remember when he used to do drag on SNL? Oh, no. Yeah. I saw he that He did the clip. Trump thing, right? There was, was like a Trump clip where he but was I think in drag. Was the, yeah, somebody sent me a gift today of him. I think it was a sketch from like from SNL where he was in a gray wig and a dress. Yeah, and you can't unsee it yeah, after I you've mean, seen it. it it's was not just, good. It was, it so much about career. what we've seen in the last two weeks, we will not be able to unsee. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. I sometimes even have trouble remembering everything we've seen, and it's only been two weeks. We are here in the Jungle Studio. I'm here with Susan Hennessy, Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, and our friend Margaret Taylor. Hi, everybody. Hi, Shane. Hi. Hi. Margaret, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. I love where, it. Where is Ben? Oh, somewhere on a plane. On a plane. Yeah. Yeah. Although Ben would probably like to try and, like, remote call in from the plane. He would do that. Ben has not found a single location that he's not willing to try and remote call in from. <laughs> he is. He's committed to the pod. He's very committed. He's, it also challenges our technical capabilities <laughs> sometimes. It pushes us beyond our boundaries, really over the edge. <laughs> it's like, we don't have the money for this. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Uh, but we edit it so you guys don't hear any of that. Um, so this week on the podcast, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo now says he was on the phone call between Presidents Trump and Zelensky that's at the center of the House impeachment inquiry. Rudy Giuliani's contacts with Ukrainian officials and the State Department are under scrutiny. And Attorney General Bill Barr, you remember him, has asked foreign officials to help investigate the Russia investigation. Um, So let's start with uh, Mike Pompeo's acknowledgement uh, this morning, Wednesday morning, uh, Tammy, that he was in fact on the call. I think earlier, I think he never said that he 
wasn't, but at some point, I think when he was asked by Martha Raddatz on ABC a while back, said he wasn't familiar with the transcript or something like that. Yeah, he didn't really know much about that, Is it, which begs the question, like, what was he doing on the call? Did he, like, have it on in the background while he was brushing his teeth <laughs> right. or something? Yeah. So talk a bit about the We signif- have all had calls like that. Listen, we've all done it. You know, come <laughs> on. Like, do we listen to most conference calls? He's like, it's just going to be another one. Um, but I am curious, what do you think in, in terms of just sort of Maybe let's just take for just a second in the kind of news rush where we are. What is the significance of now knowing that Mike Pompeo is on this fateful call between Trump and Zelensky where it appears that Trump is pressuring Zelensky to investigate Biden and other theories that he has? So I think part of it has to do with the White House's initial narrative around not only this phone call but other Trump phone calls where he has been reported to have said – wacky or inappropriate things is just like, oh, that's just what he's like. You know, he goes off script sometimes. And I think that what is emerging about the Zelensky phone call is that this was the the raising of the issue about trying to get Zelensky to cooperate with Rudy Giuliani and Bill Barr in investigating Joe Biden and investigating, you know, the 2016 hack of the DNC, that this wasn't just an off-the-cuff thing. It didn't just spring from Trump's brain. This is something that Giuliani pressed him to do. And the involvement of both Bill Barr, which we've seen in other reports, and now Secretary Pompeo suggests that it was clear that there were agencies of the U.S. government that were involved with Rudy Giuliani, with foreknowledge, in this effort to get a foreign country to investigate the president's political opponent. And so Pompeo gets dragged into this. What are the implications? I think there are two. Number one is that it makes it extremely difficult for the secretary of state to say to Congress, you don't get to harass my people. They're just professionals doing their job. Which was which his, he's been saying when they tried to get testimony from these officials in Congress, right? And he gave this very strong brushback, which in you know I have to say in in the State Department was seen as a maddeningly hypocritical, given Pompeo's own role in pressuring career officials in the State Department to get in line with presidential preferences and priorities. The fact that Pompeo has been unable to discipline a presidential appointee who was found by the State Department IG to be guilty of retaliating against career officers in the International Organizations Bureau. Um, But he's a Trump appointee and Pompeo won't fire him or can't fire him. And so, you know, for Pompeo to sort of say to Congress, well, you can't talk to my people. I'm going to protect them. They're just good professionals. is ridiculous. He's clearly in the thick of this. The person he's trying to protect is himself. And so his interest in preventing State Department employees from talking is that they might implicate him. And that's just a completely different scenario from where we were a couple of days ago. Margaret, we also saw last night this kind of – it's hard to keep track of all the sort of the amazing breaking news. But the State Department Inspector General said, sent a message to the several committees on the Hill that are investigating aspects of all of this saying, we have urgent material that we want to send to you. And Susan, I think you flagged just before we went on that you, Michelle Sendor at PBS, is saying this relates to information about retaliation against – State Department employees. 
You want to read that tweet real quick? State Department employees who want to cooperate um, with – who want to share information with Congress is is the early reporting on it. Got it. So this – by the time you hear this, listeners of the podcast, things that may have changed. But, you know, Margaret, it strikes me that this is, again, I mean, an instance where now – I mean, Congress and and the State Department were already, you know, in this standoff between, you know, Pompeo, as Tammy explained, sending this letter like – keep your hands off my people and wanting to get these depositions. The IG, as I understand it, Pompeo can't block the IG from going and giving Congress this information. So is this going to give them more ammunition to be able to more forcefully investigate what the State Department was doing with Ukraine? I would think so because, I mean, depending on what exactly the type of information the IG has that he is going to share with today or provide to Congress, you know, it's pretty if it's what is the PBS uh, reporter says it is, it's pretty damning for Pompeo himself. If you know what's going on inside the State Department is that Pompeo or or whoever is trying to you know keep people from actually doing what what they are entitled actually to do under the Whistleblowers Protection Act, which is they are they are allowed to go to Congress and to share information, certain types of, of information without, you know, fear of, of retaliation, you know, being fired or whatever. Uh, so if it is this sort of class of protected information and there's, you know, evidence that department officials is up to and including Pompeo are sort of going against that, I mean, that, that that's, that's a real legal problem. Uh, you know, there's a potential that, like, laws have been broken here. Yeah, I think the other dimension is, you know, now that Kurt Volker has resigned, he was this was an unpaid position, but he is separated from the U.S. government, and so they now minus Kurt Volker's Kurt Volker was the presidential special envoy for Ukraine and brokered meetings between Rudy Giuliani and aides to President Zelensky of Ukraine, and so he clearly knows material facts. And since he has separated himself or been pushed out, it's not clear. He could speak freely. They can't constrain him. It's also interesting, you know, some of what's happening here is clarity about the rules of House procedure in taking these depositions. Pompeo was saying, well, you can only talk to my people with a State Department lawyer present. And they're saying, no, actually, under the rules that existed when you were investigating Benghazi as a member of the House Select Benghazi Committee, former Congressman Pompeo, you don't get to send a government lawyer with these people. They karma. can only have their private lawyer. Yeah, <laughs> karma. Very nice and, and you know, nice of the, the congressional committee staff to make note of that particular precedent. So <laughs> – and I, th- I think it's also notable that um, Ambassador Marie Ivanovich, who is a key figure here, she was the ambassador to Ukraine, um, you know, even after Secretary Pompeo sent that letter to the three committee chairmen, basically saying, um, you know, kind of giving them the Heisman almost, uh, Ambassador Ivanovich is seems to be still making the decision that she will go yeah. voluntarily October and talk 11th, to yeah. these the, these committees. And so it, that's significant. Um, you know, it seems like she's not interested in sort of hiding behind Secretary Pompeo. It seems – the inference I draw is that she wants to tell her story um, and wants to do it voluntarily. She right. doesn't want to have to be subpoenaed. And I can imagine a lot of State Department officials feeling that way. 
I want to tell my story. I don't want to have to be. I don't want to be subpoenaed. I just want to be open with you know people ask me questions. You might tell a story about being pushed out of her position as ambassador because she was perceived as hostile to the Trump administration. Right, and of course Trump has this line in the Zelensky transcript call memorandum, whatever we're calling it, in which he says she's going to go through some things. Yes, right. yes. Right. That looks an awful lot like an explicit threat of retaliation. You know, this is bad news for Mike Pompeo on a couple different fronts. One is that he's pretty much been caught lying. So he went on the Sunday shows and said, you know, I'm just you're telling me about this for the first time. And maybe he's going to try and parse words about like he was talking about the whistleblower complaint or something. He was clearly not being honest sort of in on camera interviews. And the fact that he felt the need to lie shows like knowledge of wrongdoing. Right. So if if he had responded by saying I was on that call and there was nothing wrong with it and I'm not concerned at all, like right him as secretary of state saying this was like a formal official government call. We were all on the line. There was no issue. We have no idea what anyone's talking about. This whistleblower complaints the first I heard about it, but he doesn't, right? He decides to basically sit there and say, uh, I don't I know what you're talking about. I'll take a look at the transcript. You know, that itself, I think, you know, is, is a pretty strong indication of, of wrongdoing and how damaging this is, you know, to Mike Pompeo. You know, I, I, I also think that, you know, to, to Tammy and Margaret's point, it's, it's evidence of how widespread this activity was. This is not just Rudy Giuliani off freelancing entirely on his own. This is clearly the president of the United States also directing the power and authority of the United States government to this effort, this deeply corrupt, abusive effort. And I think it's sort of worth reminding everyone that the difference between acceptable diplomacy and what we're seeing here is whether or not you're working on behalf of the interests of the United States of America or on behalf of the personal political interests of the president of the United States. And so it is really, really important that people at the top, including the president, including the secretary of state, are crystal clear on on what exactly is the motivation here. This is not the kind of area in which, well, you know, some mixed motives. How can you really untangle it all? This is, this is really, really clear abuse. Um, you know, I don't know. I think it's an interesting point whether or not there's actually whistleblower protections that have been violated here. We don't know if these people are attempting to use the formal whistleblower channels, and these rules tend to be like pretty narrow in terms of what kind of activity you know, they formally protect as a statutory matter. That said, I do think that it all adds into the big pile of this is obstruction of Congress. This is going to fuel additional articles of impeachment because as they essentially engage in, I mean, effectively witness tampering, that's really what these House members are accusing them of, you know, that's going to, I think the House is going to respond by saying, well, this is just going to be another basis of impeachment. A final point is another story that I think a little bit got glossed over. And this was this story that now the State Department is sort of revitalizing uh, the Hillary Clinton email story by, you know, retroactively classifying and, and sort of now spending all this time essentially like trying to scare people and go after them, you know, for having shared information that wasn't classified at the time. Um, And so there's just a lot of evidence that there is something seriously rotten going on in Foggy Bottom. I feel like part of what we're seeing now is, you know, it's it's like the abused uh, workforce of the State Department has finally had all that it can take. Like, Okay, Rex Tillerson drives them into reorganization. Mick Mulvaney wants to slash their budget. You know, Secretary Pompeo comes in and 
patronizingly imposes this bizarre mission statement and puts it up on the wall in the, you know, all over the hallways of the building. And, you know, people are being accused of being Obama holdovers and pushed out of their jobs. Masha Jovanovich is ousted from her ambassadorship when she's only got two months to go. I mean, it's just one humiliation after another. Oh, not to mention the dissent memo, which is using proper channels. And then, you know, the hundreds of Foreign Service officers who signed that being told, get with the program or get out. There are a lot of people in that building who have been weighing whether they can stay. And I think, you know, Kurt Volker was no longer a career officer. He had retired at the end of the Bush administration, and he came back as a political appointee. But he's somebody that they all know, you know, he's not that far away from who they are. And when they saw that the president and Rudy Giuliani and Secretary Pompeo were willing to instantly throw this guy under the bus to save their own skins, I think, you know, this what we're getting now, their willingness to cooperate with congressional inquiries, it's a little bit revenge of the nerds, and you, you can't blame them. And I also think, you know, you have to, you have to wonder if there are other people sitting out there in embassies in other countries, you know, Saudi Arabia, I'm looking at you, who have sort other of stories, right, yeah. other right. stories so maybe sort of diff- similar sorts of fact patterns. Maybe it's not Rudy, maybe it's somebody else, but and are yeah. kind of sitting there thinking like, gee, what what are my obligations here? I, I, I'm, I may have that may have been a like serious abuse of power that I witnessed, you know, several months ago when so and so was in town and I felt extremely uncomfortable. So the question is like, wh- what did what did those people do? What how many more stories out are there out there? And I, it's so it's so fascinating. You make that point because in, in talk I've talked to people who you know who've been in government who are out of government and everyone in this administration well many of them have talked about this moment of like when will I decide to speak up and including early in the administration when will I should I step forward and should I say something and I think for many of them it was maybe fear of retaliation or I don't want to have to get a lawyer or I just want to get on with my life or I want to do something different that stops them but then I think with this whistleblower and now maybe what's going on with the state IG, it is kind of like it's broke the dam, right? And it's easier, I think, maybe for people to come through now that they're seeing others do it. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me to exactly to your point, Margaret, if there are people who've been sitting on information for a couple of years even maybe who now think now's the right time to say yeah. something. Yeah, and it could be you know petty things from cabinet secretary's wife demanding inappropriate favors to you know stuff that's really corrupting of the American national interest. Yeah. Um, okay, let's talk about Rudy. Um, <clears throat> Rudy, Rudy. America's mayor. Remember? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yes, once he was. Yeah. yeah. Yikes. Mr. Broken uh, Windows. <laughs> this is another chapter in his colorful life. Um, he got legal representation. Uh, he did. He yeah. did. Everybody he did. deserves robust yeah. legal representation. Yes. Sure. Yes. Absolutely. And who is paying for Rudy Giuliani's legal representation? I do not know. Well, Genuine with question, all the dollars rhetorical. he's been raking in from the Mujahideen-e-Khalq and Russian oligarchs who organize conferences <laughs> abroad. He is donating his time to Trump, though, very generously. Yeah. Now, he did decide to bow out of that conference in Armenia with the Russian oligarchs. This year. Yes, after this we year. reported that he was yeah. going. 
um, but so I mean, Rudy is, is just. I mean, so I hesitate to even say improbably in the mix of all of this because it makes perfect sense to me actually that Rudy Giuliani is in the middle of this in part because you know Rudy Giuliani, who also often describes himself as the president's personal lawyer, and I mean, I think technically he is. I think that understates what Rudy Giuliani's role really has been in Trump's inner circle, where you know effectively Trump is the decision maker in the White House and doesn't really seem to take counsel from people close to him advising him in government, but rather from people on the outside and particularly from from Rudy. And I mean, Susan, maybe you can speak a little bit to this, but the number of contacts that are coming out that he has had with Ukrainian officials, him acting as an agent potentially for the administration on possibly trying to pressure the Ukrainians to investigate Joe Biden. He's been on TV talking about this a lot longer than, than we've been looking at this whistleblower complaint. I mean, it seems to me that this is just, I mean, potentially, A, it's politically very difficult for the president, but also just illegally a mess because he is the president's lawyer, but he's acting in an official capacity. Like, can you kind of untangle some of this? Like, what should we be paying attention to when we're thinking about Rudy and these meetings and he's going on television and waving around depositions from fired Ukrainian prosecutors. Like, is there kind of a signal in that noise to be focusing on? Look, they're trying to represent Rudy Giuliani as the president's lawyer because they're hoping that he will be um, entitled to the protection of attorney-client privilege. Now, just because someone is a lawyer and works for someone else doesn't mean that that person is that person's lawyer and attorney-client privilege attaches or applies. Um, And there's actually no evidence that Rudy Giuliani in any meaningful sense is being retained as the president's lawyer, including the fact that he isn't being paid by him. Um, And there were serious questions about that sort of during the Mueller investigation. There are no questions about it in this case. So essentially, he's not the president's personal lawyer. He's a lawyer who the president knows and is using in an an entirely non-legal capacity for which attorney-client privilege does not, should not, and frankly will not apply. Now, there is some precedent of presidents using non official government employees as sort of foreign emissaries and and to have some sort of sensitive conversations and outreach those tend to be very carefully controlled, carefully coordinated. The ethics rules still apply in important ways because you don't want people just coming in from the private sector and freelancing US diplomacy. And that appears to be what Rudy Giuliani did here that He took the seal of approval from the president, including by the president saying he's my personal lawyer, he's my personal lawyer, and used it to go and do the president's dirty work abroad at the same time that the president was pressuring both foreign leaders and representatives of the United States government to assist Giuliani in that effort by doing things like, you know, introducing him to government employees. Now, think for a moment about the position of somebody like Kurt Volker, who actually is trying to help direct Ukraine policy. And this crazy guy is out there making all kinds of claims, having meetings with people, meetings that you're finding out about because Rudy Giuliani is going on TV and talking about them and making representations that have nothing to do with a cognizable interest of the United States of America. So it's not just that Rudy Giuliani is freelancing, because he's not, because it appears that he's working with the government. It's not just that Rudy Giuliani is pursuing the president's political interests, you know, rather than the interests of the American public. It's that Rudy Giuliani 
acting at the, the direction of and in coordination with the president of the United States and putting the powers of the American presidency uh, to this purpose is actually undercutting stated U.S. policy and, and is working at cross purposes at it. And so, I mean, really his, his position here is obviously central to the wrongdoing. The fact that he's a lawyer is no defense whatsoever and, and in some sense makes it worse. I want to ask a question and I don't mean to ask this facetiously, but is there an argument that Rudy Giuliani has violated the Logan Act? Probably not because he is – acting at Trump's okay. direction, okay. Right? right? And so, you know, if he's doing what the president tells him to do, that's that's not acting okay. against got U.S. It. foreign policy. Just making sure that Logan Acker wasn't going to suddenly rise from the dead. Yeah, God. Okay. But uh, Tammy and Margaret, <laughs> wait. Yeah. So I just wanted to add that, you know, the, the House committees have been focusing on Ambassador Yovanovitch, on Kurt Volker, but we they've already indicated that Giuliani's next. Yeah. Um, they these three chairmen of these three committees sent a subpoena to Giuliani for key documents uh, related to the, these matters, and they they're demanding compliance by October fifteenth. And in addition, three of Giuliani's business associates also received letters from these three chairmen seeking documents and depositions. Um, that's Lev Parnas, mm-hmm. Igor Fruman, and Semyon Sam Kislin. Mm-hmm. So we're going to know fairly soon sort of how Giuliani is going to play this, presumably, um, because there is that demand for compliance. Right. This is plausibly, I think, Rudy Giuliani's kind of network when it comes to what he's doing in Ukraine. Yeah, Tammy. I also think that, like, there is this whole question about what exactly were Ambassador Sundland and Ambassador Volker doing here? What was the nature of their interaction with Rudy? Um, because clearly Giuliani is, you know, pushing this on Trump and he's pushing the agenda and he's, you know, making his own contacts and planning his own trips. But it's also clear that these two ambassadors working in the Department of State, supposedly on behalf of the American national interests, were arranging meetings for him. It's clear that they were briefing him before. They were debriefing him afterward. They were connecting him to Ukrainian officials. And they were doing that presumably at the behest of their boss, Secretary Pompeo, and their bigger boss, the president of the United States. And yet, you know, Kurt Volker is someone who is known for having a very tough anti-Russia position, favoring providing lethal aid to Ukraine. And what Rudy's doing on behalf of the president's private interests, as you said, Susan, is undermining American policy toward Ukraine. So what did Kurt Volker think he was doing here? You know, it seems to be coming out in the sort of um, messaging that he's going to argue that he was trying to contain the damage or limit the damage, but he was also clearly brokering this relationship. And so, you know, what responsibility ultimately accrues to individuals who played a role in this, even if they thought they were trying to mitigate its effects, they were still ultimately contributing to something that was a corruption of public authority. And it strikes me too that like when Rudy has been going – on TV and in giving these interviews, and it reminds me of what happened during the Mueller investigation, where Rudy was one of the easiest people to you know to quote, to get on TV, and he was out there very much trying to throw chaff. Yes, just right? a lot of dust in the air. Right, a lot of dust in the air, and <clears throat> I think it was I think Quinta Dressick actually put this in a tweet, and it captured it so 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 well, which was that 
In the Russia investigation, you had Trump's critics trying to allege, like, uh, you know, explain all of these intricacies of these interlocking potential conspiracies, and they were looking for the kind of the smoking gun if it existed. And all that Trump's supporters had to say was no collusion. Now, Rudy went out and said a lot of things, but essentially it was that kind of simple kind of right. argument. No collusion, no right. collusion. But now the script has flipped, where his critics are able to just say, basically, we think that you extorted a foreign government for political gain. And the Trump supporters have all of these other kind of theories and conspiracies and intricate plots that they have to, you know, to, to throw up both to say, no, 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 that's not what this was about. And by the way, you should be looking over here at Joe Biden. It seems to me that Rudy Giuliani as the spokesperson for that is not as effective as potentially he was as the sort of the the chaff dispersal mechanism when it was time for a Mueller, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, the way he's sort of behaving now, as I I read it, is more about having an understanding of his personal risk for yes. himself here, yes. which is the the one, also one of the reasons why he has presumably uh, retained his own legal counsel. Um, you know, showing the these texts on his phone on you know Fox News interviews was a way of of you know saying, "Hey, wait, Kurt Volker was he knew everything I was doing." He, he Ambassador holds Sondland. the hot potato, right? And <laughs> so it seems like he has a, a a more acute awareness of his own the risks for himself here that didn't necessarily exist on that other matter. Yeah, and that in and of itself, I think, is revealing of the extent to which the president has cultivated a climate around himself such that people believe that if they're doing his bidding, they're in the clear. You know, Mm. Manafort angling for pardon, right? Lewandowski angling for a role in the reelect or, you know, whatever. Like everybody's... Impeachment war room. (laughs) It is. You know, and so Giuliani clearly thought he could freelance on American foreign policy on this the way he freelanced on Iran, the way, you know, the way he freelances on other issues. And on the other issues, he makes money. You know, on this one, he wasn't making money yet that we know of. But he thought he could do it and be in the clear because he was doing it on behalf of the president or in line with the president's interests. And it's just, it's a really interesting portrait of how the president creates this this structure around him that binds people to his interests and then hangs them out to dry. Giuliani may be out to dry now. Pompeo may be out to dry next. You know, and and everyone who touched him thinking that they could instrumentally use their association with this administration are finding themselves one by one up to the muck by the neck. And uh, to that point, I was fascinated by an interview that Tom Bossert gave to ABC this week on Sunday. Tom Bossert was the Homeland Security Advisor to President Trump when he was in the White House. And he came out specifically to talk about this conspiracy theory. I think it's fairly safe to call it that Trump alludes to in the call with Zelensky involving CrowdStrike, where he's essentially saying, I want you to look into this theory that – CrowdStrike, the company that discovered the hack of the DNC server by the two Russian intelligence agencies, has been hiding this server in Ukraine. And I want you to know if the Ukrainians were actually responsible for the hack and not the Russians. And Rudy Giuliani has been not only pushing this theory, I think publicly, but I think this is maybe one of the reasons he was dispatched to Ukraine was to try and find evidence of it or get them to investigate it. And it was fascinating to me that Bossard kind of stepped forward and, and clearly in a message of like pleading with the president – 
do not go down this road. I've told you before, don't follow these conspiracy theories. The subtext of it is like, ditch these people who are advising you. I mean, that was fascinating for somebody who's he's no longer in the White House. Uh, not to try and question his motives, but like you see people coming forward and having conversations publicly that you know they probably had either privately or maybe had misgivings and sort of exposing now like we've been trying to get the president off of this thing for a while and it's like Rudy Giuliani just keeps kind of steering him back towards it. Yeah, so I went back and watched that clip and it's not clear to me that Bothert actually intended to be making news or send a very clear message. It reads a lot more like he kind of got caught in answering a question and like clearly that's the reality but then he sort of tries to walk it back and right so I'm not quite ready to award Bothert like a merit badge. That said, it's clear that he was telling the truth, right? That like clearly this is a conspiracy theory among other conspiracy theories that the president has tried to latch onto, that his internal advisors have been telling him for a very long time, this is not true. There is no evidence to support this. And yet the president just persists in these crazy views. And so, you know, how are you going to answer whenever you're sort of you're asked these questions of, well, you know, does this have any credence? And I think what we're seeing with with Pompeo and Volcker and and all these people is this idea that you can sort of honorably serve and then walk out the door, you know, completely clean of all of this. That only Nikki Haley, only Nikki Haley has managed that trick. But even she didn't, right? That like everybody working for this person involves core compromises, and it is not possible to not make them. And it doesn't matter if you're Jim Mattis or Rex Tillerson or like you, Nikki Haley, you name it, there is that compromise. And so I do think that people have to ask themselves moving forward, like, what does it mean to serve this person? You know, this is sort of a a different topic, but the New York Times published this story about that everyone was laughing about that the president wants to build a moat around the border wall and there should be snakes and alligators. And everyone's like, ha, 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 what an idiot. And then there's another line. I think he spelled it moot. Moot. Yes. Which is, is funny. And he is an idiot. But there was another line that was a little more chilling in which he suggested um, that Border Patrol agents should shoot migrants in the legs. Now, that was reported that um, McAleenan afterwards said, don't do that. But that's not the moment you resign, right? So as you hear these stories sort of coming out in these moments and you think like, look at these really difficult compromises and you can almost sort of sympathize with Volcker's really difficult position he was in. There is always another option on the table and that option is your resignation. And so like the idea that like it was somehow honorable to try and like split the baby and and give to Rudy be the Giuliani person, just enough. Yeah, is, yeah. Or to be the person who says, "Well, Mr. President, you actually can't do that." And what does that achieve, really? Just to say that and to have him keep advocating for it anyway, right? Are you are you actually slowing down that freight train as it hurdles down the tracks? Are you really? You know, or is it just sliding right over you? All right. Let's talk now about Bill Barr. We're just sort of making our way through the cabinet, yeah. <laughs> residence advisors. Uh, we broke a story at The Post this week that Bill Barr has made trips to uh, London where he has met with British intelligence officials. And he has been to Italy to meet with Italian intelligence officials and also has arranged for President Trump to speak to the uh, prime minister of Australia. 
all with the goal of getting these countries to cooperate with the investigation being led by uh, uh, John Durham, the uh, U.S. attorney in Connecticut, which is the investigation of the Russia investigation or trying to understand more about the origins of the Russia probe, the FBI counterintelligence probe, which becomes a criminal investigation that eventually goes into the Mueller investigation. As best we can tell, you know, Susan, a lot of what Barr has been trying to lean on people to do is to cooperate with Durham. And we can get to it maybe in a minute or two what Barr thinks may be at the root of the problem here. But the first thing that strikes me about this is it seems very much out of the keeping with protocol or whatever word we want to use that the attorney general would be stepping in to go meet with foreign government officials when there's already an investigator appointed, A, and B, what exactly does he think he's going to get you know, the British government to do? Like they don't have to listen to Bill Barr. Yeah, it's crazy. So it's crazy for the attorney general to travel on unannounced official business for any individual investigation. Like if somebody had been murdered abroad <laughs> – it would be really, really unusual for the attorney general to personally make a trip in order to interface, uh, you know, with foreign partners in this way. And so, like, already we're in a world of irregularity in which, like, the attorney general has, like, a big job to do. He's pretty busy. These weird side trips to listen to tapes of Joseph Mifsud, like, this is nuts. And the fact that the investigation, which the attorney general appears to be inappropriately participating in and driving personally, even though he sort of appointed Durham as like, you know, hey, here's a legit person who's actually going to look into this. Well, it's clearly not a legit person that's looking into this, that, that maybe has some sort of um, credibility on both sides of the aisle. It's Bill Barr personally driving this train. Now, the investigation that they're trying to look into, from what we can gather, and frankly, it's difficult because you have to wade through these crazy conspiracy theories to get there is this notion that Joseph Mifsud is somehow a Western intelligence asset who was put up to all of this by the CIA or someone in U.S. intelligence. To tell Papadopoulos about the emails which triggers the investigation. Exactly. Right? Something for which there's no evidence to suggest. And if the attorney general wanted a question, that question be answered, he could go to the CIA director. He could go to the NSA director. By the way, it's not like John Brennan is still the director of the CIA. There's a new CIA director. Mike Pompeo looked at this stuff when he was CIA director and said, there's nothing to this. And so the idea that he's like going abroad to launch this investigation into information which like should be held is basically him saying, I'm investigating the rest of the U.S. intelligence community and our allies and, and sort of other five eyes. And and I'm doing it in a way where I'm being clear that I don't believe what U.S. intelligence is telling me. It just it's it is wild to wrap your mind around. Though I should say, and I'm casting my mind back to when I worked in the State Department in the law enforcement and intelligence section. 
It isn't unusual for the attorney general to go abroad to meet with his counterparts, to, you know, raise sort of important legal policy issues, maybe even to talk about a specific. So, for example, like an extradition case, if there's, you know, we're trying to extradite somebody from a country, um, they're giving us trouble, you know, have the attorney general go over there and explain how important it is to U.S. law enforcement to get this person, um, provide assurances about how the person will be treated, et cetera. So there are there are ways that the attorney general can sort of travel abroad and be implementing policy. But I agree with you, Susan, that this idea that he's sort of personally engaging in this investigation and and, and driving it is is not something I've I've ever seen. So I, I was thinking about that as well, Margaret, because you're right that that kind of law enforcement cooperation and international conversation is not at all unusual. There's also, you know, an ongoing FBI engagement with foreign governments. In fact, we have Justice Department folks serving in U.S. embassies around the world to interface with local intel on counterterrorism cooperation, for example, or money laundering cooperation. And so that kind of back and forth with the Justice Department is quite normal. And to me, what I find striking and disturbing about what Attorney General Barr seems to have been engaged in is that it's not just that he's going abroad to these foreign intelligence agencies, partner countries, and saying to them, I have to investigate our own intelligence community. He's going to them and saying, you need to worry about your intel people because you Australians, it was your guy, you know, who got us into trouble and we think maybe he's got a hidden agenda, right? He is sowing doubt in the minds of major intelligence partners about their own intelligence agencies and their own diplomats. And it feels like... You know, it feels very Steve Bannon, like just just make everybody doubt themselves. Look, and and to this point, which I think is a really important one, the Australians told us about it because they are our allies, because they had a piece of information that somebody might be interfering in a U.S. election. And even though it took them a few months to put the pieces together, they thought, oh, wow, we, we really we forgot to mention this to you, but this weird thing happened. So it's also sending the message that, hey, other Western intelligence agencies, to the extent you're seeing anything else going on right now, don't you breathe a word of it to us. Right. Yeah. So, and I... I also think that there's a broader context here for each of these partner countries. This is a relatively minor thing in a scheme of bilateral relations where they really don't want to defy Trump on anything right now. They don't want to upset him about anything. And they know that this issue is one that he really cares about and pays attention to. And I'm sure Bill Barr is reminding them of that. And so even if they disagree or even if they're angry about it. They're not going to say anything. I mean, there is one other thing, which is that, you know, just to tie this all together in one giant knot of terribleness, you know, (laughs) Bill Barr is also mentioned on this Ukraine call in which the president of the United States is holding him out as like his personal fixer and being like, hey, get get in touch with my guy, Bill, his like, you know, help help him figure out how to investigate the Bidens. Now, Barr or somebody close to sources, very close to Barr, leaked or, or made comments to the press anonymously saying, that Barr was surprised and angry to to hear the president talk about him this way. You know, wherever would would anybody get the idea that Bill Barr is just a hack working on behalf of the president 
oh, maybe it's because he's in Italy on secret travel trying to gin up the president's, like, pet conspiracy theory. And so it it goes to show you that, like, it's it's not that, that Trump has it wrong and he doesn't understand the role of the attorney general or who Bill Barr is. Trump has it exactly right because that is precisely what Bill Barr is doing. And so it it is not just these isolated things that cabinet members are doing. It is demonstrating the fundamental bargain people make in order to serve in the Trump administration and the way that that manifests itself in in really, really severe abuses of power and authority. Yeah. And as I've been reporting on this story, one of the things I've been trying to do is, you know, very much in good faith say, OK, try to understand, go back everything that we know about the origins of the Russia probe and Joseph Mifsud talking to George Papadopoulos, who then tells an Australian diplomat, who then tells the embassy, that then tells the FBI. And is there something in this that could speak to you know a flawed process or kind of a corrupt origin even or maybe a full picture that somebody didn't have? So things were prem- – their investigations were premised or even predicated wrong. And you know, I'm still puzzling as to what that would be. But Susan, to your point, Bill Barr, not only being the attorney general, has access to classified information. He's operating as part of this investigation under an executive order that President Trump issued that allows him to declassify any and all information held by the U.S. intelligence community. It actually expires upon the end of Barr's appointment. So if he, if there were answers to things that he thought maybe were done inappropriately on the American side, it seems to me he could go into whatever the record is and find that. And I just wonder, like, what is a foreign government going to tell him about a U.S. investigation? And maybe they could speak to some overlap or cooperation that they had with the Americans. But I would have to imagine that the overwhelming amount of information about how the U.S. intelligence community and the FBI conducted its probe of Russian interference isn't contained in U.S. government files that he has access to. So why the globetrotting? Yeah. Hey, hey, there's good Italian wine out there. You got to try it. Oh, it is lovely this time of year. I think you meant it rhetorically, but there actually is an answer to that question, and that's that the Attorney General of the United States' brain has been rotted by Fox News. And he has watched and consumed this stuff for the decades since he's actually been Attorney General. By the way, a pretty well-respected attorney general, moderate conservative who had, you know, a, a, a solid legacy as sort of a DOJ institutionalist. And so whenever he came in, he sort of brought that credibility with him. Now, every step he takes, every sort of move that we see him making publicly, whether it's the summary letter of Mueller or his, you know, Italian escapades, I think is a demonstration of, oh, no, that's not the same Bill Barr at all. It's Bill Barr who has hooked himself up to this right wing media ecosystem. There were some red flags whenever he said things like there was more of a predicate for Uranium One in that original letter he wrote to Trump back whenever he was auditioning for the role. And I think people sort of dismissed it, myself included, as like, well, surely Bill Barr isn't crazy. He's just kowtowing there and trying to get the president's attention. Yeah, 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 but it turns out he's like your great uncle at Thanksgiving dinner. And he's (laughs) attorney general of the United States. And Donald Trump is president of the United States. And so I, I do think there are actually bigger implications of that as well um, that are pretty alarming to think about. All right. Let's do something less alarming. Let's have object lessons. 
Oh gosh, this is thinking it's nicer now. Um, I'll, I have a happy one. I'll do. Okay, one. go for it. Uh, I'm gonna log roll for the Lawfare podcast. Yes, uh, yes always, always. Uh, Quinta Dresick did a great interview with uh, Alina Polyakova here at Brookings, who. Just, I mean, in the most lucid and clear and like kind of narrative fashion, walks you through, as the title of the podcast suggests, WTF Ukraine. And like, if you have any questions, like if you were listening to this podcast and you're like, I don't know what the F you guys are talking about. Like you lost me at like Yanukovych someplace, but I don't know why. Go listen to this podcast. It's great. It will answer all of your questions. Like Alina puts it like succinctly into just this easy to understand history. Does a great job. Quint asks great questions. Uh, yeah, just go check it out. WTF Ukraine. I'm probably mentioning it too late in this podcast if we've already lost you, but yeah, <laughs> you should definitely go see it. It's your fault if you don't listen to the object lesson. Yeah. Can I do mine next? Yeah, of course. It's, it's sort of similar. Um, yeah. On Monday here at Brookings, um, Susan and I participated in a panel discussion about impeachment, and it was it's, it's an hour and a half. E.J. Dion is there. John Hudak is there. Lane Kazmark is there. It's a good group. If you want an hour and a half on impeachment and what's going on right now, go listen to it. You will know everything you need to know in an hour and a half. We should have called it WTF impeachment. Yeah. But instead we called it impeachment 101. Brookings wouldn't have let us do that. Yeah, big Brookings wouldn't have liked that. I I do have to just mention that our colleagues at AEI have a hilarious new foreign policy podcast that they call What the Hell is Going on with X. Oh, I love it. Yeah. That's great. That's a podcast for the Times. Yeah. Um, Do you want to do yours next? Um, Sure. I'll go next. So – this is a this is a tough day today because a year ago today I got a text from a friend of mine in Istanbul wondering oddly if I'd heard from our mutual friend Jamal um who I hadn't actually seen in a few weeks because my friend had been with him the night before and Jamal was going to the Saudi consulate to pick up some documents and he hadn't come back. Um And it took another week before the spin and the lies and the BS broke open and we learned what actually happened to Jamal, which is that shortly after he walked into that building, he was murdered um, by agents of the Saudi government. So for the one-year anniversary of Jamal's murder, the Washington Post, which employed him as a columnist in their global opinion section, put together just a, a beautiful thoughtful package of columns from people with a wide array of perspectives from a bunch of different places around the world. Um, I am honored to be in their company with a short reflection on the dilemmas faced by Arab political exiles of whom Jamal reluctantly became one. Um, But the whole package, which is over a dozen pieces, is really, really worth reading. and I commend it to all of you. Yeah. And thank you for contributing to that. Yeah, Delighted so. to have the opportunity. Yeah, it's a somber day, but I think there's also it's a this has been a moment that's also shined a big light on uh, press freedoms and the need to protect journalists around the world too. So we're trying to remember that as well, right? Indeed. Okay, great. We're gonna wrap it up there on a happy note. It's we'll be back La. in a week. <laughs> <laughs> um, but thank you for being with us. Rational Security, of course, is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. Uh, you can find uh, Rudy Giuliani branded Ukraine merchandise. I think we're selling it. Only now. the baby onesies, though. Only the baby onesies. <laughs> Giuliani baby grows. You can find some of his fine Ukrainian wigs. 
at Lawfare Wig Store. Dresses and heels. Dot com. <laughs> Those should what be in the, the Smithsonian. Like, Next to the ruby slippers. <laughs> that would be great, right? I mean, you know, come on. Rudy might be down with that. You never know. You like These call notes are going to end up in the Smithsonian. I think so, too. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a rating and a review. We really appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week was Michaela Fogel. Back in the audio seat. Thank Woo-hoo. you, Michaela. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patiahal. Music this week by... <laughs> By Rudy Giuliani with his cover of the classic uh, by the Pixies, Where Is My Mind? <laughs> <laughs> oh. It just came to me. It's it's laughing all the way in to the flash, bank. In a flash, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Sophia Yam would happily back that one up. On behalf of my good friends, Susan Hennessy, Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, and our special friend and friend, Margaret Taylor, uh, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. 